Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the most important form of art in the last 100 years. I'm going to argue that without a doubt, it's film. Our different drummer this week will be Stanley Kaufman, and when I get to him, I'll discuss him as being the most important film critic in the history of the art form of writing critical analysis of motion pictures. But before I get there, I'd like to lay out a case, maybe an obvious case to some people, but perhaps less so to others, that motion picture filmmaking is art, even in its most commercial form, and that it's the most important form of art we've had in the last 100 plus years. That'd be an easy argument to say that film as art is critically important because it's the newest or at least the newest significant form of art that's been released. Um, Other forms of great art have been getting produced in the last century, but it's been in a form that we're familiar with. We're comfortable with music. We have no problem discussing music as an artistic art form. We have arguments with ourselves about whether or not rap qualifies or heavy metal qualifies. And by the way, I believe both of them do. But there's no problem getting someone to acknowledge that some form of music is definitely art with a capital A. Likewise, very interesting and provocative things have been have been getting done on canvas with paint and in sculpture with various media. But the newest one, really only dating back perhaps 125, 135 years from now, is film. And when film was first produced, it did not take long before filmmakers were dabbling in the medium as if the medium had an artistic message to relate. Now, obviously, the early years were all about experimenting with the form itself. And you had a lot of things that were developed early on uh, from a commercial perspective. Stagecoach and train robbery films, for example. But and, and it also, if you look at the history of it, didn't take long for the new media to produce pornography as well. Or at least what we would have considered pornography at the time. And I'm going to go out and say probably what we would still consider to be pornographic now. To me, that's obvious. Uh, for a new media to come along and succeed... It has to succeed simultaneously on two fronts. You have to get a good response from the artistic community. So you're going to see things like opera uh, on film, Shakespeare on film. But the other thing you need to see is that other end of the spectrum, that lowest common denominator. And uh, the example that I use from my lifetime would be the competition between Betamax and video cassette, VHS, as to which would be the um, format for recorded tape video. And Betamax started off more successful, the two, because in its association with certain um, lines, Phillips in particular, it covered the classical music side of things. You had uh, Betamax video being released of orchestra performances and of opera and of things of that nature. But the reason the VHS ultimately won the market and survived in the minds of a lot of people, including myself, is that VHS ended up being, uh, perhaps because it was slightly cheaper alternative, the medium of choice for amateur pornography and as a result you get you end up getting both your highbrow and your lowbrow together at the same time it really wasn't that different back in the original time so when you get as late as the 19 teens 
you begin to see examples of what I would clearly point to as film being used as art. So one of the things I want to do to make my case of just what an impressive art form it is, is kind of wander through the years pretty quickly and highlight some key moments that I think are really important. Now, these key moments in this first part of the uh, inappropriate conversation we're going to have will be things that I think from an artistic perspective, it makes sense to go back and see. I won't recommend anything that I would consider to be a waste of time. I'm going to stay well within what Stanley Kaufman used to say in his column, films worth seeing. They may not be your cup of tea. They may not ring your bell. If you're into westerns and space thrillers and some, you know, things of that nature, some of these are going to be pretty far away from that. But from an artistic perspective, they're worth seeing. I hope to double up near the end of the show and talk a little bit about films that have had a personal impact on me because I don't think you can talk about anything as being an artistic medium if the average person's response to the art itself couldn't function personally. It has to have that kind of communication to it for it to leave the realm of being commerce and get into the realm of being art. Does it speak to you, in other words? But first, I want to go back to 1915 and 1916 in D.W. Griffith and talk about two movies back-to-back, one of which I don't watch, and I can't imagine being inspired to watch it again if it weren't from a scholarly perspective, and that's The Birth of a Nation, 1915. My favorite part of that film is the reenactment of the Lincoln assassination, but almost everything that comes after it and a great deal of the things that come before it rub me the wrong way, for want of a better word. It has a uh, political perspective, which is heavy-handed, and it has a racist um, approach. At least the characters within the show express a great deal of racism, not just overtly, but just in terms of the way they're presented. Why that's so important, though, to understand Griffith's movie in 1915 is that it provides incredible context for what I consider to be his masterpiece in 1916, Intolerance. Now, these are silent black and white films. In the case of Intolerance, you're talking about a three-hour film. But Griffith introduced some things, not just in the style of filmmaking, the editing, for example, but the technique of cross-cutting that is still incredibly influential today. If you're watching a film from Steven Spielberg, picking up uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, any of those films in that genre, you're seeing a great deal of influence from D.W. Griffith. Anytime you see one character in peril, cut against another par- character, either in parallel peril or trying to save the day, and the uh, rescue mission is intercut with the danger, you're, you're going all the way back to uh, D.W. Griffith and Sergei Eisenstein when you're, when you're at that point in time. So 1916, Intolerance. And to me, the earliest film that I'll cite as a direct effort by a director to make a statement on film as art. He's got four different eras being depicted. He cuts back and forth between the eras. He also has it blocked off into chapters. And he is making a statement that the critical backlash against his film, The Birth of a Nation, was an example of intolerance. And so he's putting intolerance on the screen as an answer to his critics all the way back in 1915 and 1916. Jump forward to 1922, and you get a pseudo-documentary called Nanook of the North, which is interesting because of the importance of documentary style to filmmaking, and also to some of the questions that you see raised today, uh, even by critics like Stanley Kaufman, about the impact film has upon the culture. We're dealing with a lot of reality TV these days, and a lot of cinema verite going all the way back, uh, in my experience, my lifetime, going all the way back to the late 60s, and the filmmaking style of John Cassavetes, where you're, you're looking at an effort to put reality on the screen. 
But at what point does your work of coming in with a film crew and shooting things and following someone around impact their lives? In his review of the film The Gods Must Be Crazy, Stanley Kaufman asked whether the fate of the tribe that was used as the centerpiece of the South African film, uh, following a, a, you know, some tribesmen through the desert, whether the tribesmen in the desert would have the same you know, negative fate that Nanook of the North and his clan actually did when the filmmaking crew comes in, shoots a film, influences the way you live, and then they leave. Uh, how quickly can you go back to living your life as you otherwise would have had you not been part of what, what we might call a reality TV show? That's 1922. Followed in 1923 by Safety Last. Now, Safety Last by Harold Lloyd, probably an excellent example of 100% pure film as commerce. This is a roughly hour-long silent film made to entertain. And entertain it does. In addition to some of the more stock elements, you know, boy meets girl, boy, boy wants to impress girl, all that sort of stuff, you also have an incredible set piece, especially when you consider it's 1923, a set piece where Harold Lloyd is literally, as the main character, claiming the side of a building in a stunt intended to, you know, impress his woman and, and uh, kind of get, you know, get the girl uh, to live happily ever after. Well, he's climbing the side of a building, ends up hanging off the face of a clock. Um, it's a good example of something meant to entertain that does entertain, but does so so well that it's artistic at the same time. In my mind, Safety Last in 1923 would be completely supplanted in 1924 by Buster Keaton. Now, when you think about Harold Lloyd, Charles Chaplin, and Buster Keaton, and in my mind, I think of those three as being the giants of what we would consider that era of silent film comedy. To me, Buster Keaton takes the cake when it comes to technical prowess and expertise. Uh, Charlie Chaplin may have been a better storyteller. I enjoy the acting of Harold Lloyd a touch more, maybe just a, a smidgen more than Buster Keaton's acting. But Sherlock Jr., to me, is the best example of what Buster Keaton is capable of, as the key element of the film is that he is a projectionist. Dreams of one day being you know, a detective or really important in society. And as he falls asleep, he has a hallucination, for want of a better word, that he is able to walk right into the film that he is showing. And the uh, cinematography techniques that are used in filming him going from one scenario to another as a human character living inside the actual film being broadcast is unbelievable. Sometimes we think of those early silent films as being simple, as being two-dimensional. And I think that's actually an unfair characterization of Laurel and Hardy or even the Keystone's, the Keystone Cops. But when you look at a movie like Sherlock Jr. or later uh, The General by Buster Keaton, it's impossible for me to think of those films as being anything other than technically exquisite. And that's 1924. In 1925, uh, from Russia, we would get Battleship Potemkin, which if you put that together with the D.W. Griffith film in 1916, and kind of wrap that 10-year period of those, the work those men were doing at the same time, you also get a pretty good impression. Uh, Potemkin is so good that Brian De Palma and others steal from it willingly and gleefully. And that period from 1922 to 1925 is just one example of, at the very earliest point, filmmaking producing incredible art. And this is a point before we were actually handing out any sort of Academy Awards for achievement in filmmaking. I'll jump forward to 1931 quickly just to cite City Lights as being Charlie Chaplin and, and a good example of his work. It seemed like I needed to cite a film from each one of those three great directors. But what makes City Lights to me so interesting is 1931, we're fairly well into the talking era. I mean, we're a couple of years into talking films here where you know Chaplin had to fight for the right to make his film as a silent film, which is what he wanted to do. And he was the last of these of these early directors to actually um, give up and make talkies like everyone else was. 
1937, Jean Renoir released Grand Illusion. Now, right around the same period of time, he would re release the rules of the game. And most critics that you'll read will tell you that the rules of the game is the more impressive artistic achievement. But I can't help but to think that Grand Illusion, from the um, genre of war film, gives us an anchor that we really, really need. To me, Grand Illusion is a map that I use to help myself get the most out of films later that would come along like Slaughterhouse-Five, or even uh, films like The Bridge on the River Kwai, as it produces a prisoner of war scenario and plays that out as really the key to its drama. But the other thing is when you see the way war is run today and the way war films tend to be plotted today, particularly since Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter, it's nice to go back and see a movie like Grand Illusion, which presents war from an earlier time where there was a certain set of rules that were in play and those rules were abided by and Grand Illusion does that nicely. So if you wanted to find incredible artistic achievement, uh, driving things like the film Epic or the documentary or comedy or political films like Battleship Potemkin or war films, you can find a lot of those in the you know, first, what I would call the first three decades of commercial filmmaking just as easily as you can today. And if you spend time with any one of these films, you get more from it than just a history lesson. There's more here than just an educational opportunity. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Does the thought of wielding a broadsword make you long for ancient times? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek science fiction, fantasy, and horror podcast. Listen to Starbase 66, the international speculative fiction podcast at simplysyndicated.com slash shows slash Starbase 66. In order to talk about film as art and to deal with the period between 1939 and 1993, I want to take a completely different approach. I've got a folder that I keep on my computer and a file I keep called Better Pictures. And the idea behind Better Picture is that for every year we've had a Best Picture winner, there's another picture that is either the better picture and that it should have won instead, or the better picture in the sense that maybe it's the best runner-up um, in a good, better, best perspective. Um, what would I have chosen if I hadn't chosen the one that actually won the Academy Award for Achievement and Most Motion Picture Filmmaking? Partly because of the way the numbers lined up, and partly because of the significance of the films made during this era, I first focused my attention when I started this on the years 1939 to 1993. Now, from a Best Picture Oscar perspective, 1939 is Gone with the Wind, and 1993 is Schindler's List. So if you're going to put some you know, uh, bookends <laughs> on the bookshelf and line up some films in between them, those are some pretty good films to use as your bookends. My better picture choices during that period of time, The Wizard of Oz from 1939, and Groundhog Day from 1993. I'm not going to suggest that I would have taken my better picture as the, the true best picture in those, in those years, but I'm more likely to say The Wizard of Oz ranks for me as a movie I'm more, I'm more likely to sit down and watch. Uh, Stanley Coffin was once asked about film adaptations, great books, uh, respected novels being turned into movies. And, you know, that's one of those areas in, in the art of filmmaking that is consistently vilified, that there's a lot of people who have a lot of negative feeling about the quality of film adaptations of books or plays or other established medium. And it, there's no doubt that it does make sense that that's a good criticism, that there are books that frankly should be left as books, that they're written in such a way that that's the proper way to communicate those ideas. James Joyce, for example, is, is a very difficult author to adapt into film. And I often wonder why some of the attempts have been made that have been made. But on the other hand, it's not that the entire endeavor is a failure. Uh, 
Stanley Kaufman's quote about the Grapes of Wrath was that he read Steinbeck's book once, respected it, had no problem with it, has no need to read it again. But he's seen the film, The Grapes of Wrath, by John Ford more times than he can count. And if it was showing tonight on television, he would probably watch it again. So if you think about it in those terms, how would I feel about the difference between Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz? Well, Gone with the Wind is an important movie, maybe the most important movie from 1939. And I would even wave my hand at the idea that it's one of the most important films ever made. But if given the choice tonight between watching Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, I'm going to pick The Wizard of Oz. And although I feel even more strongly about Schindler's List than I do about Gone with the Wind, given the choice, I'd probably watch Groundhog Day. But if we take the more serious approach and say, well, where's the true artistry at? Let's not just take it from film enjoyment or which one would I rather watch, but can I cite a quick 10 examples of best picture winners during this period of time that I would personally supplant with a different movie? Well, yes, I can. Starting in 1941, an entry that's so obvious I won't dwell on it, uh, instead of How Green Was My Valley, I would have given the award to Citizen Kane. In 1952, instead of The Greatest Show on Earth, I would have given the award to Umberto D by Vittorio De Sica. Now, the Italian neorealist director, Vittorio De Sica, was no stranger to the Oscar. So you can say, well, there's no way in 1952 that, that an Italian director of a foreign film is going to win you know, a, a best picture. And you're probably right about that. However, one of the first honorary Oscars ever given was to Shoeshine. Um, and Shoeshine was given the honorary Oscar for De Sica before there was a best foreign film you know, to give the award to. And when you start talking about the earliest best foreign film winners, well, you're right there with the Sica again in terms of the, the honors that he'd been given. So for me, Umberto D coming after Bicycle Thieves and after Shoeshine may be less appreciated than it should be, but um, of all the films that he ever made, that's the one I would pick most. And I consider its competition in The Greatest Show on Earth to be pretty weak. 1959, uh, Ben-Hur, I would have chosen instead Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Uh, perhaps, again, maybe goes without saying, I'm not a big fan of the bloated epic, so I will uh, offer all the respect necessary to certain examples of that form, like Lawrence of Arabia, but not so much to Ben-Hur. And North by Northwest is an outstanding example of Hitchcock's work. The difficulty that I have in picking a favorite Hitchcock says more about Hitchcock. It's not a criticism of North by Northwest. It's a worthy example. In 1967, of all the best picture winners I'm going to cite here, um, this one's my favorite of the ones that I'm going to supplant with a different choice. In the heat of the night, I mentioned it uh, in the show about the content of their character, that I was going to sit down and watch this thing again, and I have done it. My esteem for it has not diminished in the least. It's risen, as a matter of fact, and my esteem for Sidney Poitier has risen with it. It's a fantastic film. In 1967, though, I would give the best picture to Belle de Jour by Luis Benuel. And Luis Benuel, also a different drummer, and Belle de Jour is perhaps my personal favorite, at least the one I enjoy most of all of his works. Between Belle de Jour and The Phantom of Liberty, it's very hard for me to make a choice there. But in this case, 1967, a wonderful year in film, and a wonderful year for artistic film, game-changing artistic filmmaking, not just in the heat of the night in Belle de Jour, but also The Graduate. For many of us, we were introduced to Dustin Hoffman as an actor in 1967. In 1969, Dustin Hoffman was a key part of Midnight Cowboy, which won a Best Picture. Won a Best Picture with an X rating and was lauded as being uh, the Academy Awards growing up, that were hit, heading into the 70s, and during that period of the 1970s, it was okay to make movies for adults. Everything didn't have to be Bambi. Everything didn't have to be It's a Wonderful Life. You could make movies 
directly for an adult audience. And perhaps Midnight Cowboy made sense to the voters at the time that it had language in it, it had nudity in it, it had sex in it. But really, the defining character trait of America's quote-unquote growing up in the R-rated movie is violence. And Midnight Cowboy probably uh, less violent and less demonstrative of what violence on film would do than The Wild Bunch by Sam Peckinpah. That would have been my choice in 1969. Awfully hard for a Western or a science fiction film, or even a comedy to win Best Picture. But in this case, the influence of The Wild Bunch, I think, exceeds the influence of Midnight Cowboy. 1971, The French Connection, I would have gone with The Hospital, the Patty Chayefsky-pinned Arthur Hiller-directed film starring George C. Scott. And uh, my bias toward uh, Patty Chayefsky, well, it also would have extended to 1976. Rocky is one of those films that people love, but I think Network was by far a greater artistic achievement. And both those movies, the 1971 film, the 1976 film, benefited greatly by the script writing of Chayefsky. 1981 would be the next great year in filmmaking to me. Raiders of the Lost Ark on Golden Pond, Chariots of Fire, uh, Coup de Torshan. There are great films that came out during that time. Uh, not to besmirch Chariots of Fire, but to be honest with you, I can't imagine watching Chariots of Fire again. There may be a time in my life when I see it finally for the second time, but I, it, it's hard for me to pick out when that day might be. Instead, for me, uh, Reds was the best film of that particular year, and it still sticks in my craw just a little bit that Reds did not win that best picture. This is a great example of a movie that I think is the better picture in every conceivable way. Out of Africa from 1985, I would have supplanted with Brazil. Talked about Terry Gilliam, talked about Brazil before. I'm going to talk about it again a little later when I talk about the personal connection with film. And, and is this art in the sense that I, I, I get something from it that, that speaks to me, that I can see elements of my life where I can connect personally with what's on the screen? To me, film is not just entertainment. And even films made primarily to entertain have an opportunity, and the best ones take the opportunity to go one step further. And finally, to round this out as a top ten, Rain Man, 1988, I would have replaced with Wings of Desire. Another example of, of putting a foreign film in there, yes, unlikely to occur. And by this time, when you're dealing in the mid to late 80s, everything about the Oscars is about commerce. And so if uh, Wings of Desire had been owned by the right film company and uh, they felt that Vim Vendor's work would have translated well from English, uh, from German to an English-speaking audience, and there was big money to be made by stamping it with Best Picture winner, then, to me, it's certainly the better film. However, uh, Rain Man, there was a tremendous marketing opportunity there, if nothing else, uh, to hand that movie an Oscar. In fact, if you go back a ways, uh, you know, the entry before, in 1985, Out of Africa was neck and neck in competition with The Color Purple, for which film would be the cash-in film for whichever studio could stamp Best Picture Oscar winner on their post-event marketing and re-release the film to movie theaters and get people who had skipped it the first time because they thought it was you know, not their cup of tea. It's amazing what people will watch that they wouldn't watch otherwise. So if you wouldn't watch an historical drama like Out of Africa when it doesn't win Best Picture, people go back to the theaters for whatever reason and watch it when it does. I got to enjoy No Country for Old Men, which is a film I love. I got to enjoy that in a dollar theater on second run after it had won Best Picture with a an audience that was hostile toward it the whole way through. And I just thought, well, you know, there's something nice about the fact that people get out of their comfort zones and will go see something that won Best Picture. It's just a shame that we don't get uh, the opportunity to lure people in to see the better pictures as well. 
Finally, if we pick up after that 1993 period, just want to cite a few more films and begin to talk about the personal impact that they have on me and, and some of the artistry that's there. You wouldn't think of the Pied Piper children's story as being something that's an example of high art, but there's no doubt in my mind that for the film The Sweet Hereafter, it not only produced a great uh, novel on film, another good example of an adaptation, gave Ian Holm and others a chance to really, uh, really stretch themselves as actors and show what they can do. But it also elevated, to me, the children's story to the form of high art. And anytime you can bridge that gap between adulthood and childhood, you're going to get good results. A little later in 2002, Lilo and Stitch would do that as well for me uh, with the story of the Ugly Duckling. And if you if you watched Lilo and Stitch or if you skipped it, um, and if you watched it and dismissed it as kid fare, it's worth watching it again from the perspective of Lilo and Stitch being essentially a depiction of the Ugly Duckling story and what it means to feel like you've lost your path, you've lost your way, or you've been left behind. Um, I find Lilo and Stitch to be both entertaining and a really powerful piece of storytelling if you can get past some of the things that are just the conceits of the animated genre. There's a lot of sci-fi in there, which I personally enjoy. And there's also the problem of, you know, would would this pair of sisters really be living on their own after the death of their parents? Or would Family of Services have stepped in long before? If you can get past that, there's much there. Bullworth is one of my favorite films from the perspective of race relations, and essentially the point of the movie is that maybe if, as a society, we continue to um, hook up with each other, for want of a better word, our race relations problem will disappear because the racial distinctions will become blended together. In the film Bullworth, that, that's worded much more eloquently by Warren Beatty's character, and much more comically, so I won't spoil it, but uh, Bullworth, an, a better example of speaking to race relations than do the right thing or driving Miss Daisy from, you know, five or six years earlier. Three Kings has a moment where I didn't remember it. I saw the film, enjoyed the film, and a couple years later I was thinking, there's a movie that I've seen somewhere that really spoke eloquently to the question of courage. And it was a time in my life when I really needed to dig down and find some courage, but I couldn't remember the film. It was Three Kings, hidden in an otherwise action-oriented quasi-war film with George Clooney's star power driving things and kind of making up for the deficiencies of performance from Mark Wahlberg and, and Ice Cube. But in there, there's a conversation that that the Clooney character has with, with the character, another character in the show that's just uh, frightened. And um, knowing that know, they know what the right thing to do is, but they're afraid to do it. That main character reminds his friends that courage is not something that gives you the power to do what has to be done. Courage is what you get from doing the right thing, even though you're scared. So he basically says, hey, you're, not gonna, you're never going to summon the courage to do what's right. Courage comes because you do what's right, even though you're afraid. And, you know, again, a powerful message almost hidden inside the plot of that particular film. Three more. I promise I'll limit myself to three. 2003, The Return. I won't try to pronounce the name of this film in Russian, but a very powerful film in terms of the relationship between fathers and sons, parents and children, siblings. Um, it tells a, a dark story, but it also tells it with a great deal of simplicity. Again, art doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be complicated. Straightforward on film, what you see is what you get, and yet has a profound message to tell and doesn't hit you over the head with it. If you see the movie The Return cover to cover, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, there's a moment in the movie where if you have seen it before and you're watching it again, you'll know 
lessons are being taught that will matter later. But the first time you see it, you don't realize it. You're caught up in, in what you consider to be an abusive relationship and genuinely is an abusive relationship, but you don't catch it till the very end. Um, the return is far less heavy handed than other movies like uh, ordinary people. Um, and much more straightforward in the, in its storytelling than other films of its type dealing with fathers and sons for want of a better word. Uh, Serenity, uh, my favorite science fiction film. I, I wrestle between the first Star Wars and Serenity as being my favorite science fiction film because there's no getting back to that feeling that you get when you leave the movie theater as uh, as a kid in 1977, um, having seen Star Wars for the first time. But if I make a less emotional, less nostalgic choice, it might be Serenity. And to me, Serenity does speak to some of the religious issues we're facing today, where as a movie, it talks about what it means... Uh, how profoundly evil it is for anyone to believe that as humans, we can create a society without sin. Let me say that again. Uh, in the midst of all the sci-fi, in the midst of the, the Western underpinnings that are so crucial to the Firefly TV show upon which Serenity is based, there's this message in this movie that comes louder and more clearly than at any point in the television series, that the main characters here are face-to-face with an immovable force. It's not just the alliance that they're dealing with in their struggle, literally just to be free, just to be left alone. They're dealing with a special agency or even an agent within the alliance whose job it is to try to create a society without sin. And when I look to the religious right today in America, and when I look to uh, certain elements of Islam elsewhere in the world, what I see is a lot of human beings spending a lot of their energy trying to make us righteous. And what the movie Serenity shows on screen doesn't really tell it. It's barely mentioned in one exchange after the Alliance has come and literally slaughtered everybody that the Firefly crew has ever relied on for help. All their friends have been brutally uh, murdered by these agents of the Alliance because the Alliance is hunting the Firefly crew. And basically, just matter of factly, they say, hey, you know, when your quarry goes to ground, leave them no ground to rest on. And from the conversation between the two men, Mal, our main character, and this assassin, this, you know, assassin, for want of a better word, it comes out that the Alliance assassin is basically saying, no, my, my job is to create a world without sin. You know, I'm not going to live in that world because I'm a monster. I'm a murderer. You know, I'm a liar and a thief and a killer just like you are, Mal. And Mal says, you know, you're, you're nothing like me. You know, there's a huge difference between the two of us. I'm not interested in creating a world without sin. Now, where does Christianity lie in this argument? Is Christianity all about um, trying to put the right leaders in charge of our country so our country can be a godly nation like ancient Israel? And if you didn't see that, I put air quotes on godly. (laughs) Um, Is that the right answer? Or is Christianity truly about an individual personal relationship with God, trusting and having faith that the Holy Spirit will lead us in the right thing to do? And in the story Serenity, um, shielding a young woman who's being tortured and used for political ends by an, an overarching totalitarian government, protecting that girl is the right thing to do. And killing people to try to catch her is the wrong thing to do. But uh, I'm wondering if, if you kind of line up the political aspirations of certain groups in Washington, D.C., uh, of the religious right elsewhere, of certain um, religious political lobbying organizations in Colorado and Mississippi and in other parts of our country, would they look more like the Alliance assassin or would they look more like the ragtag crew of, of uh, Serenity, uh, the, the Firefly crew? And I think that probably in the eyes of a lot of these religious folks, 
they've got an us versus them, we, they siege mentality going on in their head that makes them feel like, yes, they're the renegades, they're the rebels, they're trying to reestablish order. But the truth of the matter is, no, there's a heck of a lot of political power being wielded by those people. And here in this movie, Serenity, you, you can see a pretty good example of what a world without sin created by human hands looks like, and that as Christians, and this is a call out directly to Christians, we have to have enough faith to trust that God knows what he's doing, and not to assume that anything that is said in the book of Revelations, or for that matter, in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, says that we need to exercise some godlike power and some godlike authority of our own. And yet I think that's what you see a lot when you read the political landscape, when you read it properly, I would say. The next great year for me, and the last year I'll talk about, is 2006. I'm a huge fan of this you know, period of time, just five years ago, with films like Stranger Than Fiction, The Lives of Others, even Children of Men, much going on there in the realm of you know, comedy drama, I guess, in the case of Stranger Than Fiction, a fantastic, pure, straight-up, dramatic suspense story in the lives of others from Germany. And in Children of Men, sort of a sci-fi post-apocalyptic adventure. But the film I'm going to take out of that year is After the Wedding. Now, Suzanne Beer, the Danish director of this film, who has made three other movies with the same co-writer, Thomas Anders Jensen, had just released another movie that I haven't seen yet here in 2010 and 11 called In a Better World. I say 2010 because it just won the Best Foreign Film Oscar, but it really hasn't been released. I haven't had an opportunity and won't until later here in 2011 to go to a cinema and watch that movie. But the film that those two collaborated on before together, the last time they were both working on the same movie at the same time, was After the Wedding. And After the Wedding, for all the complaints about you know, violence in films and uh, the cartoon cardboard sort of good guy, bad guy stuff you'd see in movies like Titanic, After the Wedding stands out as the perfect example of what film as art can do. Because this is one of the rare elements that I've seen where a movie has come along without a genuine antagonist. There's one character who, a very minor character, who does some bad things. There's, there's a bad guy role. He generates a dramatic element by, by being somebody who really messes up a wedding. But the key characters, you know, the, the bride in the wedding, both of her parents, the stranger from out of town, all of these people are good people. They're good people that we, during the course of the film, come to care very deeply about. And not a one of them can be pointed to as in any way a villain or a bad guy. And yet almost all the drama with that one little exception, all the drama comes from their relationships with each other. It's a wonderful, brilliant, life affirming film that I think almost anybody who can get past the English to Danish translation would be rewarded from film as art with a capital A and yet film nevertheless written and produced with the idea of entertaining and making money after the wedding. Stanley Kaufman has released something like 10 books of film criticism, and I'm proud to say that I own every single one of them. It's uh, not his entire work, because he hasn't anthologized into published book form everything that he's written for the New York Times, the New Republic, and elsewhere. But you know, at the age of 95, it's staggering to me that the man is still working. For years and years, he was the weekly film columnist for the New Republic, and you can still find his work more on a monthly basis now at uh, TNR.com. His uh, bio from the New Republic describes him this way. 
Stanley Kaufman, after graduating from New York University's College of Fine Arts in 1935, he was born, by the way, in 1916, worked in theater, radio, publishing, and television. He published a number of plays, mostly uh, one-act plays, and wrote seven novels which were issued here and in Great Britain. He has been writing for the New Republic since February 1958, chiefly in film criticism, but also a considerable theater and literary criticism as well. His theater and film work has won several awards. He has published seven collections then, I think it's more now, of film criticism and theater criticism, along with a book of memoirs called Albums of My Life. He began teaching in 1967 and has taught at the Yale School of Drama and the CUNY Graduate Center at Hunter College. Stanley Kaufman is a Jewish man, white, married, of a different generation. And, uh, you know, from, from his generation to mine, you'd think that there wouldn't be a lot of connection. And yet, I've relied more heavily on his work than on any other critic that I can name, uh, whether it be um, a film coming out with a distinctly Christian storytelling or a distinctly Christian message. I'm more likely to trust Kaufman's opinion about that movie, even from a Jewish perspective, even from somebody who's you know, a generation or two older than I am, than I would anybody who is writing for Christianity today. And to me, that says something, because he's brought an integrity to the work that um, he isn't about telling a particular story from a particular point of view. He is willing to criticize things that his magazine otherwise would support. If a film came out, for example, that was artistically brilliant, but nevertheless critical of uh, Israel or the nation of Israel, Kaufman is the critic that I would, I would rely upon to have positive things to say about that. And over the years, you've seen examples probably in other critics where either their political ideology or the viewpoint of their publisher has influenced their work. I think that happens more often than we know, and it happens only very rarely, if ever, in my experience, with Stanley Kaufman. We talk about people being highbrow critics, and, and I, do, I would describe Kaufman as a, as a magazine critic. What I mean by a magazine critic, as opposed to being a newspaper critic, is that a magazine critic is going to be more likely to spoil endings, more likely to go on for you know three, four pages. It's unusual to see a newspaper critic go on for more than 20 inches in the copy length of a written review. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, Siskel and Ebert became entities unto themselves and really blur that line in my mind between what it is to be newspaper versus magazine. But typically, you think of your newspaper critic writing a review from the perspective of, will my readers enjoy this? Um, thus being the kind of critic to give a really positive review of Greece. After all, the musical Greece is very enjoyable. And then, you know, committing themselves to the one, you know, the one inch blurb later so the capsule reviews can keep what their opinion is in the minds of people who come along the newspaper later. Stanley Kaufman is the other kind, uh, a more serious critic, more likely to find things that are worth praising in what we might otherwise consider to be poor films, and very willing to criticize things that, are, even in the greatest movies, should be better. He was the uh, only critic who I think both got the movie Reds fully and completely, but also, even in his otherwise glowing review for the film, did point out some things that would have made the film better. Um, subtitles and a little bit of biographical identifiers on the witnesses that testify throughout the film the first time we see them. So that you aren't uh, not knowing who Henry Miller is if you didn't already know what he looked like. And that you're going to miss opportunities like that. Or some of the people who actually appear as supporting characters within the film itself, so they're depicted both as witnesses and as characters, made it easy for you to connect those dots. So not afraid to criticize the things that are good, not afraid to praise even, even the worst films where there's good qualities in them. 
In the movie Silkwood, for example, which he did not enjoy, found it to be manipulative and, and politically suspect, um, he still nevertheless praised you know, elements in the film, particularly the acting of Meryl Streep. There's a website that I have just recently encountered called metacritic.com, www.metacritic.com, and there's a critics file tab. And in there, you can find Stanley Kaufman and get a sense of his comments or his capsules, his reviews of films. I won't go through them. There's plenty there, most of it looking somewhat recent. It gives you both a sense of the kinds of films where he has stepped out and spoken, and also uh, enough, of, enough of his writing style to give you a sense of what, his, what, it, what he liked or didn't like about the movie. I'll cite just one example from the Metacritic website, referring to a film series that Stanley Kaufman introduced to me, talking about 49 Up, which I believe is still the most recent entry in Michael Apted's uh, English documentary, following the lives of several school kids from the time that they were seven. Seven Up, at age seven, was his original glimpse into their lives, and he's come back every seven years with a new film to tell us where these people have stood. I haven't seen them all, but here's the brilliance of Stanley Kaufman. In praising the new movie that has come out, he also gives us a sense that it's okay if you've missed some. His uh, capsule, or the capsule on the Metacritic website for 49 Up, say this. These segments are so cleverly arranged. Apted includes past pictorial references for each of the people we revisit. That now there is something almost mystical involved. It's as if a wizard were giving us an overview of 42 years that mortals were possibly not meant to see. In other words... This documentary, 49 Up, and the diligent work over each one of those seven-year spans to stick with it and continue to deliver has created something which any one of those films by themselves might not stand up to. Kaufman is telling a viewer like me that if you go to see 49 Up, having missed both 35 Up and 42 Up, you're going to be okay. In fact, in some ways, you're going to get a treat that you might, otherwise, you might not otherwise get. This for a documentary film that perhaps your average moviegoer couldn't pick out of a lineup. Oh, how lucky we have it today with the internet in particular and uh, some of the resources that are available to us now. If the next Stanley Kaufman comes along, we won't have to go through anywhere near the diligence of buying books of anthologies and poring over past magazine editions in libraries. I can remember in college, uh, not long after I figured out who Stanley Kaufman was, going to the college library and literally spending hours um, going through past issues of the New Republic, trying to guess where in the ballpark of page 18 to 25 the film review segment would be, because it tended to fall in that same part of the magazine, and uh, just going in and saying, okay, what's this review about? And actually spending more time in the films that I had seen already than in the ones I hadn't, because by reading what he had written about things that I already knew, I was able to gain more insight into whether I should spend time on the things that he was going to recommend that I, I didn't know anything about. Just to quickly talk about a couple of films and to talk about finding yourself inside the movie and film as art speaking to you. In the movie Brazil, there's a scene where Sam, the main character, who's unwittingly found himself to be an enemy of the state, who has no intentions of overthrowing the government or posing any kind of threat to the established order, but just through a confluence of events uh, and, and through his own passions, for want of a better word, has found himself in exactly that position. So he turns to an old friend of his who has a lot of influence in the government and is, in fact, one of the key governmental torturers. So somebody that uh, he would ultimately you know, perhaps have to deal with as an enemy if things got much worse than they were. And he tracks him down. And he says, Jack, you know, 
I need your help. And the dialogue goes like this. We've always been friends, haven't we, Sam? Jack asks, sort of answering Sam's request for help. Well, yes, Sam answers, encouraged by the question. Then do me a favor, Jack says, and stay away from me until all this blows over. Now, I was uh, taking a look at some notes I'd written for a while back for a letter that I might have thought about sending to an old friend from high school. I've ultimately shelved that, decided not to do it. But in the course of this short letter, I make references to several movies. I make references to this scene in Brazil. I told my friend, it's Al Grant, that we never had a conversation that was exactly like that or even shared similar words, but we never had to. In some ways, your message was delivered loud and clear. There were things that you didn't want to discuss, you know, and in when I saw the movie Brazil, that scene jumped off the screen at me and said, yeah, this is exactly what you felt like in that particular place at that particular time. I also made reference to the Francois Truffaut film, Jules and Jim. And if you've seen Jules and Jim, you'll know that there must be some sort of romantic triangle involved, but a strange romantic triangle where um, friendship is kind of blurred into the mix there and everything was casual for a while and then sort of turned serious. And, you know, Jules and Jim's a unique film. And, and I saw myself in, again, my relationship with this same friend in that movie as well. And in some ways, I used the film Broadcast News to explain that same period in time that led to those strong emotions. Because there's moments in broadcast news that also have that same element of, you know, intersexual friendship and, you know, what does it mean to try to be navigating romance with friendship at a time when you're too young and too immature to know even how to manage all that or even where those lines might be in the Sacred Friendship program. I talk a little bit about kind of uh, where I grew up to, but this was from a period of time when I had not yet matured in my understanding. And films help that. Films both help me revisit you know, kind of the immature ideas that I had before and where I am in relationship to that, where I've grown, where I've come from. But also there are times when you'll see a film where what you're seeing on the screen is like, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly it. This is is a movie that I needed to see at this point in time to even talk about that possibly happening. And I've dropped the names of dozens of films in this show where that actually could apply. Film has to be art. And it has to be art with a capital A. My list has included movies like The Wizard of Oz, After the Wedding, The Wild Bunch, North by Northwest, Stranger Than Fiction, Lilo and Stitch. All these things intended to be commerce. But I dismiss the argument that just because something is made to entertain and made to sell a ticket, it can have a great deal of artistry to it as well. And from that perspective, the idea that mixing these two is not necessarily a problem and one doesn't negate the other. There's very little doubt in my mind that with the only possible exception of music, current popular music in particular, there's no art form that's done more to reach out and kind of inspire those sorts of higher thoughts in the minds of people than filmmaking, filmmaking over the last 100 years. I'm a little wary of what it means for us to step into the next one or 200 years and get to the point where film has become just as stale in our minds as other forms of art. I'm reminded of the scene from Amadeus uh, shortly after uh, a gala premiere performance where the uh, king's representatives come to speak to Mozart and tell him that that while the uh, performance was breathtaking and spectacular, probably had too many notes. That scene played for comic effect still highlights the fact that even things that we look at today as being museum pieces, like the work of Mozart, was simultaneously being written for a popular audience, for a crowd to attend, 
and also for the heads of culture, the king himself, to speak to, not just to enjoy, but to speak to, to have an answer back for the artist, not just in terms of ticket sales, but also in terms of artistic quality itself. Hopefully, film will not be regarded in the next generation as something that the upper crust spends way too much money and dresses up way too nicely to go and see far too sporadically. Hopefully, that won't occur. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website has show notes enabled at HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening. Roll credits.